0: Steve, happy Monday. How are you, man?
1: I'm uh, doing good. Turned a whole year older over the weekend. Just yeah. uh, 38 years old now, man. Life is uh, cruising by. My wife and I were talking about it. we met when we were, when I was 21. I was like, holy crap, 17 years. The, yeah. It's been, uh, man, time flies. If you're young and you're listening
0: to this, don't take it for granted. Yeah. Yeah. My wife and I have that joke now because we've officially been together longer than half our lives, which is a crazy thought that was that crazy yeah yeah now that you're 38 man you're older than me we're always yeah, the yep. same year for a while so you have yeah. that birthday and then I get a few months where you're the old man <laughs> let, let the uh, old man jokes rain down yes um, yeah dude it's a it is this year's like flying by. I'm having this realization because, you know, the first part of the year to me is it was like, oh, it's a new year and all this stuff is eventually going to come. And now it's like, oh man, it's Coming. getting ready to turn May next weekend and go on a bear hunt, turn around June's insanely busy. The summer's always our busiest time of year and it's going to be fall before we know what it really is. Yep. Um, just before we dive into things, uh, a quick thank you to everybody. The last couple of weeks we've been, talking about the blemish sale that we launched on the Fusion Packs. And those are sold out. Uh, They sold out last week. So um, thanks to everyone who supported that sale. And we will be finished shipping all of those out here in the next uh, couple days. So if you purchased one of those and haven't yet got tracking information, a bunch of them have shipped. uh, Hang tight just another couple days and you'll be getting your tracking information. And those will be headed your way um yeah it was good to, good to get those moving and it's always it's always fun to have guys be like i've been listening to the podcast forever or i've been wanting EXO for a long time and this opportunity to save you know is a is a good opportunity for them so it's kind of a kind of a win for a lot of guys to be able to save because we just as, as most folks know don't do sales very much so it's cool um, Steve, anything new? We we talked about doing this kind of like, hey, here's new gear, new thought, new whatever. Uh, anything in your mind that you're trying? Any new gear you've gotten recently? Anything like that? Mm, <laughs> want to talk about shoes? <laughs> <laughs> of course, I guess. Uh, no, I
1: know um, at Hunt Expo, Zamberland had those um, kind of low. Um, I guess I'm. Did you get some, those? I didn't think they were out yet. No, there was one you liked. And there's one other one that I was. Eyeballing. Oh, it was a different one that you were looking at. Um, it's called the 215 Salath, Salathe GTX. Um, sending them back. If that, I guess, answers anything. They, I think they're, they're a low shoe. They've got, Saberland um, does a, you know, very good, uh, good job on construction craftsmanship. Um, they're just like the foot bed doesn't quite fit me. So I just warmed to the office a couple of days. But I do think if someone's looking for like a low hiker, mm-hmm. if their certain foot shape fits that shoe, it, it, it was just constructed very well, has um, good cushioning in it. Um, I was very impressed with it and, and frankly just bummed out that it, uh, it's just like there's just too much room like in the heel area. Um, and then the, um, I guess that's it. That's the, it's kind of the heel like right. It's just sliding around. I tried a couple different insoles, seeing if I could fix it um more thicker socks and it's like eh they're all kind of band-aids it just doesn't quite fit to fit right mm-hmm. out of the box so send them back but good um it definitely has had some potential If someone's looking for something that's like a a low hiker hmm.
0: how do you i guess this brings up a question. So you guys are hearing you talk about this and assess what works and what doesn't and obviously as many folks know you try a lot of shoes and boots mm-hmm. how much time do you give that and how quick do you make oh, that assessment
1: sucks yeah i wish i could wish I could take them for, you know, half a dozen hikes or something and send them back. But, uh, you you know, sometimes you got to, they got to be in basically like new conditions. So I I usually just put it on, wear it around the house. Uh, If it's got some promise, then I'll wear it to the office the next day and just try to, I guess you get a feel for, you know, how much, um, how it's fitting, right? Is there like, I try to wear like a super thin sock uh, to feel so it's not hiding where there might be pressure points, you know? Um, so you're really just feeling the inside of the shoe. And mm-hmm. uh, and I just kind of just try to slide my, tighten up the laces and try to slide my foot around. And I could just tell like walking up the stairs of my house that that the, the heel, just the heel cup in the back was just too roomy. Uh, and it was just kind of up and down. I kind of like walked down my stairs sideways and could just feel the heel like sliding left and right uh, in mm-hmm. the back there. And so I just like... And so at that point, I was like, oh, I'll try some different insoles, see if I can kind of fill in the gap back there more and um, nothing was working. So, but yeah. again, I was bummed because it had some good promise to me. It's, um, you know, it's got to have a good shape to it. Um, one thing that like, I think I've got a very, a lot of uh, contour and shape to my foot. Um, and then if you look, some people have like a bigger kind of blockier square foot, but the, <clears throat> some shoes I'll notice that are like, don't they don't grab at the arch in the middle of the foot and you can just see them in the design or they just look very straight on the sides the, the, those are the shoes that the second i go they feel fine but then you start walking downhill there's just nothing stopping your foot from sliding all the way into the front of the shoe it's kind of mm-hmm. got to grab at the arch area mm-hmm. um that have a pair of um ultra lone peak and then they're the mids and they have this really ingenious design of um, where the laces tighten there's like this kind of band that wraps around the arch and it just makes so much sense. Cause also obviously an ultra has got all this, this giant toe box in, in the front Um that uh, this little, you tighten up the laces and it just kind of hugs that arch in and around the top of your foot. Um, and it works. Like I actually just hiked yesterday with those. I was doing a training hike, testing out some different lumbar foams and I put a hundred and it's like 109 pounds in the pack and did a four mile hike. And, uh, wearing those ultra peaks. If I was on trail the whole time, my feet were crazy comfortable.
0: Hmm. Um, I got an incredibly random one of something new and small, uh, Jen last weekend being Easter had Easter baskets for the kids. And I stole something that she gave Cameron. Um, she at the dollar store, had this like mini uno set, like the card game, uno, But the cards are only maybe like, I don't know, two and a half inches tall, two inches wide, something like that. And it's this little tiny deck of Uno. And I saw that I'm like, that'd be cool, like for backpacking or like uh, even in Alaska hunts or whatever. It's like any potential hunt where it's like, okay, we may get stuck in a tent forever. Um, You know, sometimes you're just looking for stuff to do, like to pass the time, especially if you're with people. Uh, you can't really play, Uno by yourself, but anyway, it weighs like an ounce and a half and packs up incredibly small. Um, and I was like, I'm totally stealing that from Cameron because <laughs> it's one of those things he'll completely forget about. Right. right um, yeah. And it's like, I'm going to throw that in my gear bin once he forgets about this. And on future hunts, if it's ever that probability of spending a bunch of time in a tent with a buddy, cause weather's bad, like that may find its way into my pack. And it was at the dollar store. So it's uh, nice. I don't know if where you can get them otherwise but maybe you're randomly keeping out for that so yeah.
1: if you're um, going up to alaska and staying in a tent and you got you're not solo absolutely
0: um have something to occupy time i'll say that yeah. yeah i mean there's you know even my goat hunt this fall right like there's probability we have bad weather and get stuck and we'll see so it's like just like one of those good options to have i'm not gonna bring it on every hunt but it's like yeah that can make its way into the pack at times nice ounce and a half of fun Cool. Let's dive into the EXO question for the week, and then we will get into some other listener questions. But this one is about pack fitting uh, without being able to be in person to assess pack fitting. Here's this question
2: Hi, I'm a relatively new hunter, and I, please don't laugh, live in California, and I don't have a whole lot of options of places that I can go and actually check out product. How do you suggest? I would size a pack for mainly a couple day hunt, but up to five days without actually seeing it. The pack that I have right now doesn't really fit my needs.
0: All right, Steve. So pack fitting when you can't get hands on, you can't get the pack in the store. It sounds like, you know, when, when I first hear pack fit, I think of, you know, fitting it to your body, but he also mentions assessing pack fit based on the length of his trip. So I think he's both asking about, judging kind of the size, the volume, like what model pack is right based on my gear and my trip. But then obviously we want to talk about pack fit in terms of what what pack is going to fit you and can the frame be adjusted to fit you. So uh, we obviously run into this a lot with probably 95% of our customers buying without ever putting their hands on the pack first.
1: Yeah. As far as bag size, I mean, I think we do a pretty good job there on the website of saying what for the average guy, what each bag is going to do when that's 3,200 is the weekend forty-eight hundred You can stretch that five to seven days. And then you jump up to the 6,400 when you're, you know, you're really doing that seven to 14 day trip. Um, all, obviously all that depends on there's guys who can do a 10 day trip out of a 3,200 and guys who can't do a weekend out of a 64 somehow. Um, Diony is one that comes to mind. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so it just depends on your packing style. You know, if you're new to it, there's very natural pack your fears. You're going to have more than you need. You're going to need more. So therefore you're gonna need more space than you need. You're also going to have, um, gear that is just less refined most likely. Right. So if, if you're new to it, you're going to have, you know, it just takes time to accumulate lighter weight and more compactable compressible gear. Uh, so just starting out, um, that's where the 4,800 hits a really good sweet spot for us is uh, it's plenty big enough that even with bulkier gear, you can certainly get a weekend out of it. And uh, at the same time, if you're packing it, once you start dial it in dial in how much food you're packing dial in that, you know, you don't really need all this much extra clothes and whatnot. Uh, then you can start stretching that out to week long hunts. So in our descriptions there on the website, and I think I even did a video that's been a couple of years, obviously, but uh, on kind of just a rough comparison between, the three bag sizes there and, and just a video of where you could see them next to each other to get perspective. As far as pack fitting, that's obviously the trickiest one. Um, there's uh, again, we just do our best to do education, right? Um, videos and articles and fitting charts and things like that. So you just got to dive into the website. Uh, and really, if you're struggling at all, just call us, Mark, you or Jake will pick up and and walk you through it. We're just going to ask, what's your height? What's your weight? What's your waist size? What's your inseam size? Uh, And we can start, you know, I think we get very, very close. We're going to 90 plus percent of guys, we're going to get you into the right thing right away. Every once in a while, sometimes just depending on your body shape and how your hips are, where your hips sit and things like that, then we'll swap you out. But you just really, for us, it's a, a decision of which frame height do you want? And then what waist belt size do you need? And then, uh, and then from there, once you get it, there's fitting things, right. The, where you adjust the harness and the belt is adjustable and things like that. But uh, that's all stuff that, uh, um, again, we do videos and try to educate as best as we can. And then if you're struggling, um, uh, which is, we don't get too many guys, but certainly there's a percentage that just need a little bit more help Then we have. You take like, uh, put 30, 40 pounds in the pack and take a photo, uh, have somebody take a photo of you from the side and from the front and send it into us. And then usually we can spot. Um, there's a couple of indicators that tell us, you know, um, where, uh, where things are off and make corrections. And usually it's very, very, very rare that we, uh, can't get a pack to fit somebody correctly.
0: Yeah, that covers it well. Um, we'll leave links to those videos you mentioned, Steve, uh, in the description. So if guys want to check those out, we can certainly do that. Um, before we do dive into the rest of the listener questions, I, I meant to mention up front, uh, just to remind folks, uh, Basically this week is the last week of April as the show's coming out and we are pulling a winner of the custom Chris Reeve knife at the end of the month for anyone who does leave us a question for the show. So if you're hearing this episode as it comes out and before May 1st of 2022, um, look for the link in the show description to SpeakPipe uh, to leave us a message with your question and If you do that this month uh, in April, you'll be entered uh, for that giveaway. And then just one other quick thing on that, because we've had so many awesome questions come through. It's obviously going to take some time to get through all those. But just so guys know too, I mean, some of there's some great questions that we're just kind of sitting on for timeliness purposes, right? So as we do get more into summer and some closer to fall hunting seasons, you know, we'll maybe do like a full on in-depth Q and a episode on say some of the elk hunting questions that have been coming in. So um, just know that there's a lot coming and a lot of great questions that have been submitted. Uh, but again, if you have any ideas, any questions or a pro tip for us, go ahead and leave us a message with that. Um, and then, yeah, diving into the rest for this episode, we had some related to a recent podcast we did uh, that was episode number 338. It was about a guy who killed his first elk and then also had to push SOS on his in-reach. And here's one follow-up that came through in relation to that episode.
3: I just want to
2: say uh, thanks for the podcast. I shot my elk then hit SOS. As somebody aspires to do a solo backcountry hunt, it's just a nice reminder of uh, what can go wrong and what else to be prepared for. And try to get prepared mentally. Thanks.
0: So that comment came through from Justin, and I wanted to kind of elaborate on that. Just super brief, but especially for newer hunters, as great as it is to tune into the podcast episodes with the experts, and we've you know done interviews with guys like Court Jacobson and Paul Madell and many many others. And that's great, but I think there's so much value in listener stories, especially, you know, this recent one that we were just talking about, but there's a ton in back episodes of our podcast. And just wanted to let you guys know, tuned in, that you can go and filter and just view the listener story episodes. Um, and so I'll leave a direct link to do that in the show description. If you just want to browse through all the specific listener stories, and then just remind you guys that if you go to the podcast page on the X-Montagear site. You can browse by category and listener stories, one of them. And you can also search there if you're looking for something specific based on a keyword. Um, So yeah, go check out the link to the listener stories because I I think there's a ton of value in those episodes. And then also related to that specific episode we just talked about, uh, episode in 338, we had a pro tip come through from a listener of the show who's actually a friend of Steve and I's Anthony Oberti. And he had a short story to share uh, in relation to that podcast that came through. So here's this tip from Anthony.
2: Hey, Mark, Steve, listen to the podcast yesterday about the elk hunter in northern Nevada that got in trouble and turned around and how he was looking at Onyx to help get him out of there. And it made me think of a, something that happened to me last year in Colorado. First time in this country. I've been around it, but not hunting this exact area. And I killed a mule deer at last light. So I got them, you know, dressed out, quartered, had the whole thing packed up and threw my pack on and started hiking out. And I knew I was about two or three miles from my dirt bike, which is another 10 miles from the truck. I started hiking out, but it was pitch dark, you know, and low on food and low on on, uh, water, super dark by myself. So I decided I'm going to throw the tracker on my Onyx just to kind of see how far it is. And I had a general idea of the direction I needed to go. So I started going all as well and about a mile into it. You know, you look at your Onyx, it has a little arrow tell you which way you're going. But it doesn't always give you a true picture. I realized I started going the wrong direction. I'm like, oh, I need to go more to the right, not to the left. Next thing I know, I looked back at my Onyx and I had done a circle and realized, oh crap, I'm not going the direction I want. So the whole point of this is I think that when you're able to track yourself on your onyx it really shows you the true direction you're going rather than just a little arrow and that kind of saved my butt and ended up being four miles not two miles or whatever i thought it was so i think if you're in an area in the dark by yourself with no trails doing the um, tracking can be really beneficial so hopefully that helps some of your listeners in case they ever get into a bad spot thanks guys
0: good tip there from anthony steve do you use the tracking feature much no only only when i want
1: to um you know track the distance and usually i I don't use the onyx tracker i use the strava app that i use for hiking and mountain biking and stuff like that Mm. um but certainly there's there's just like when you're hiking in the dark and it's not steep terrain where it's rolly and stuff like that it's it is so easy to get turned around um the just even in Kodiak, uh, when you hit those flats, you know, and you're like, you know, you're in general walking towards the, the water. Um, but it can be tricky, man. Like you just start, it's so easy to get like 10, 15, 20 degrees off and start going the wrong direction. And, uh, there was a spot at, when I first started elk hunting, uh, we had this ridge we called seven point Ridge. Cause somebody had, uh, missed a seven point and buried a broadhead in a tree up there <laughs> um, years prior. That was like one of those stories that was passed down, you know? And, uh, but on the top of that Ridge, like it just got all rolly and all these ridges connected together. And it was near impossible to navigate in the dark with a headlamp coming out because there's just no terrain features to help guide you. And it was 100% like that. That was like the Garmin e I had back then. Like you had to create a waypoint where the truck was, and then hike out to it. And it was tricky because you couldn't, couldn't go in a direct line of the air, right? Like you, the ridge kind of did a, an L shape to it at the top. And, um, but, uh, yeah, that I remember that, one. that one's always stuck in my head. Cause it's just, uh, it was impossible to do without a GPS. Um, and, uh, certainly been in those situations over the years <laughs> in Alaska, Moose, Hunt, uh, with Lenny and I, that first time we went up there, we, we did that whole circle thing. Like we literally walked by a tree and we're like, all right, camp is this way. And there's, there's no trees up there. Um, and we just started hiking and like an hour later we're standing next to the same tree <laughs> and both of us were like, what the hell just happened? Uh, yeah, there's just no, when you have no reference point, man, you gotta be careful. And so hiking in the dark without like obvious following a ridge downhill, uh, it gets tricky.
0: Yeah. I'm glad you said that. Cause that's one thing that stood out to me is yes, for sure in the dark, but also just anywhere where we don't have visual reference points. I mean, you could be uh, in the daylight, but if you get into really thick, and as you said, country, that's kind of rolly, where you don't have major terrain features to follow in terms of elevation or what have you, and then you don't have visible points of reference. Uh, that's when things get really tough for sure. So turning that tracking on can help you see, am I circling back? Am I going in a consistent direction? Um, Cause it, it definitely can be easy to get turned around. So, all right. This next one came through with a suggestion. Uh, we talked, I think that was just last week on the Monday minute about uh, the piranha pants, how much we've used those, but unfortunately how they are changing and uh, probably not for the better. And so we had a follow-up suggestion to that.
3: Mark and Steve, this is Jacob out of Louisville, Kentucky. I hope you all are well. Wanted to have suggest, uh, I, or I have a nomination to replace the Prana Stretch Zion Pant. I was listening to your podcast, and I understand it's being discontinued in its original version. Anyways, the Wrangler Men's Outdoor Zip Cargo Pant from Walmart. It's ninety-seven percent nylon. Three percent spandex. It's a very similar makeup to the stretch Zion, which I have the stretch Zion, and I had, I liked it. I killed an elk using you know in those pants, and um, I, uh, I didn't love the pocket for pocket configuration on those pants, so they weren't perfect. But the pocket configuration on these Wrangler pants, these are twenty three dollars. The pocket configuration is great, and it's uh, very stretchy, comfortable, moves with you. Love the pants, love the price, and worn them all last year. Very durable. Uh, and even if you don't want to use them for hunting after you try them out yourself, you're going to love them just to wear out and about because they're they're that comfortable. And at $23, you really can't beat that price point. So wanted to put that out there. Uh, thanks for the, the podcast, and uh, have a have a great uh, day, and enjoy your, your death hike whenever that takes place. All the best. Bye-bye.
0: All right. So thanks Jacob on that recommendation. Um, I have tried those. I've tried them. I have a few pairs and that's, I guess, part of what I'll get to here in a second. But um, Steve, I knew at some point I had mentioned those on the podcast and I was like, I wonder when that was. And it was back in TSS episode 12. And it was just, it was weird to me when I realized that Steve to think of when we were doing those TSS episodes. And for uh, listeners who don't know what that is, we started basically right when COVID hit um, and was a thing we started doing a daily kind of podcast like a Monday minute but every day and we called it TSS for the shutdown show and it was oh, in- right. I was trying to remember what TSS stood <laughs> <Yeah>. for <laughs> it was like yeah. it was in the early days of COVID when we didn't know what the heck was going to happen I think we all thought uh, oh yeah we're shutting what was this story we're shutting down for two weeks or something yeah, so right, like, yeah, yeah we can podcast every day for two weeks no problem and then yeah. like I don't know. We were six weeks into it and like, uh, we should probably stop at some point. <laughs> uh, so anyway, yeah. Uh, I talked about those back then and I had used them prior to that, but um, they are great pants for 23 bucks. If you get a good pair. And I think that's part of what uh, I would just caution people to, if you can go to a local Walmart um, and, Check them out and try them on. That's great. That's what I originally did is I stumbled upon them in Walmart years ago. Um, they looked great, bought them, and they fit great, and I've been happy with that pair. Uh, after that, I had bought a couple pairs, I think on two different occasions, and I received one pair and the fit was completely different. Um, so same size, same pant theoretically but completely completely, completely different. Um, and then another pair that I received fit about like the original pair, um, which was good, but was just not, almost felt like it was sewn differently, d- inspecting it. Um, and those were not durable at all. So I think it's just one of those things, you know, they're hit or miss, I would say, or at least that's been my experience. I have a pair I love. I have a pair that I absolutely hate, can't wear because the fit. And then I have a pair that just the quality, uh, I guess saying the quality wasn't there is relative when you're talking about $23 pant, but anyway, they didn't last. So, um, if you can go and check them out and determine they fit for you, then that's probably best. Or obviously if you order them and you're out 23 bucks, you can take them back do whatever you want to do there, but they are a good budget, um, option to consider, um, also in that TSS episode, just another budget gear item um, since it's been a while since I've talked about it to recommend is if guys are looking for like a mid-layer uh, grid fleece is there's a Condor is the brand grid fleece on Amazon. And they usually run right about 22 bucks um, and it's a fantastic piece. So something uh, close to like a first light. Why did I just draw a blank, Steve? Klamath. Klamath, yeah. Like a first light Klamath, uh, like a Sitka heavyweight hoodie, that type of grid fleece. Um, this one isn't a hood. Um, it does not have a hood, but it is like a full quarter zip, has thumbhole loops, and is a is a pretty great piece for $22, $23. is usually what the price is about. So a couple good budget clothing options there. All right, Steve, uh, had a high level question, um, come through on basically just getting started and, uh, have a few resources to point this guy's, this guy to. So I thought it'd be good to share those resources. But before we do that, here's this question.
3: Where is a good place to start and what are some good resources that you can
0: use to start planning an out of state hunt? All right. So that is a massive high level question. Um, And I feel for the guys because there's like the guys in his shoes, there is so much information, but it's also hard to like boil things down. Um, There's so much information. I can feel like information overload. So a few key things I just wanted to share uh, with this listener who shared the question, which was Josh, is uh, one, there's an EXO Mountain Gear article that's literally called How to Plan an Out-of-State Backpack Hunt. But again, this is a high-level article, but it's going to give you like, hey, here's are, here are the things you need to research, you need to plan, you need to um, focus some attention to. So, I'll leave a link to that. That, that's, uh, that article in particular is written by our buddy, Josh Kirchner, um, and he has a book that he wrote as well called Becoming a Backpack Hunter. Um, and so, once again, if you're newer, maybe not to hunting in particular, but newer to Western hunting... Backpack hunting, et cetera, that would be a great book to check out. So we'll leave a link to that in the show description. And then for, you know, this guy mentioned it's his first out of state hunt. And so when you start looking at other states, you're going to get overwhelmed with figuring out how to get a tag and what state and for what species and all different seasons. And, you know, it's it's difficult when you're learning just that process of how to get a tag, much less actually plan that hunt. And so just want to point uh Josh and you guys listening, if you're in this situation, to a prior podcast, which was episode 269, and we talked all about tags, draws, and point systems for Western states uh with Jared Lyle from the Hunt and Fool, and went state by state and didn't discuss every single opportunity, but gave a good overview um, of how each state worked. Do they have a point system? Is it a bonus point versus a preference point, point? Um, and then kind of hit some of the higher level species in those states as well. So check out those resources, and then I would say specifically, you know, if you're targeting say elk, for example, I would highly recommend uh, the University of Elk Hunting online course through Elk 101 because they go through yes, elk hunting strategy and tactics and calling, but they do go through uh, the different states and planning processes and things like that. So Uh, Josh, good luck planning that first out-of-state hunt. I think if you check out those resources, um, you'll get a good head start on kind of where to start doing some research and planning for that. Steve, this next one um, came through and is somewhat related to Idaho in particular, but also has some general topics to hit on. Um, Let's tune into this question here.
3: Hey guys, this is John out of the Boise area. Looks like Idaho's legalizing lighted knocks this year. Curious your thoughts on using those in the field. Doesn't seem like I see a lot of backcountry hunters use those for elk or like mule deer. Seems like it's more of a white tail or maybe bear on a bait type of uh, practice that they use. Just curious your take on that. I know it affects FOC. Um, I'm already running pretty high FOC, so I'm thinking about... uh, taking the plunge on lighted knocks and accepting reducing my foc a little bit but i'll still be pretty high overall i'm just wondering if you have any experience with lighted Knox and maybe you can discuss any of the advantages and disadvantages of using those and if they're different for backcountry hunting versus you know whitetail stand hunting or bear bait stand hunting thanks guys
0: All right. So Steve, he's referencing some changes, uh, that Idaho, um, has for this coming season. I think technically these, these changes in the regulations, I believe take place on July 1st. So I don't think they apply to the spring hunts right now, like for bears, but, um, for any fall hunts and yes, lighted knocks are now legal as well as mechanical broadheads now legal in Idaho. Um, which I was kind of surprised by it has been one of the kind of the standout mm-hmm. states for example especially on the broadhead issue that it's been fixed blade only which is uh interesting to see those changes come about yeah absolutely yeah so when you hear that um i guess i my question to you for either one of those light and or mechanical broadheads um and we can talk about them separately but for either one of those do you have any interest or do you think that's any of any benefit to hunters really?
1: um on the light of knocks i mean he was he had the nail on the head he was it's like a should i do these and b how's it going to affect my arrow um so if you you know when you're building an arrow for your bow obviously i'm selecting the arrow itself the weight of the arrow the grains per inch what type of insert are you going to shoot 100 125 you know even heavier 150 grain head on that um am i going to put wraps on the back what knock am i going to use all those things are Things I'm taking into consideration when I'm trying to build an arrow and reach basically a certain weight, a certain FOC and a certain spine, right? Um, On an arrow, you've got static spine, which is what is listed on the label, right? A 330, 340, a 400. And they have the dynamic spine, which is that as you add weight to the front and or back of the arrow, you're changing that spine. So when I'm building an arrow and just from years of experience, I know, you know, roughly what I need to do, what's worked in the past. Even if it's a new bow, it's like, all right, it's similar specs, similar feet per second, similar brace height. Uh, it's probably going to put the same stress on the arrow. Uh, not always true, but for the most part, it's a general rule. Like I, I just always shoot like a 330, 340 spine, sometimes a 300, and those seem to work out pretty well for me. So with the light of knocks, it's, it's uh, all right. Now I'm throwing, you know, 20, 30 grains on the back of the arrow. That's certainly going to affect the rest of the arrow, and it's going to weaken the spine of the arrow. Uh, oh, wait, no. I'm sorry. Stiffen um, stiffens the spine of the arrow. Um, so you just need to know that and play with it. I, I don't think there's from a, just purely a light and knock perspective. There sure isn't any harm. And it's extremely useful information when you find your arrow after you shot an animal. Um, you know, sometimes when you not sure about the hit and you can't find the arrow, then you have to rely on just giving it time. You got to be cautious. If you, weren't sure of the hit, but then you, you know, you've got this light knock glowing and bam, there's the arrow. You walk up to it and you see, you know, good blood on it, or you see, you know, green guts. That's going to tell you a lot. So there is no harm at all. Um, in shooting them if it's going to help you find your arrow. I don't know how practical that is. Uh, as far as like, what percentage of arrow, you know, times you're going to find your arrow that you wouldn't have. Uh, I'm sure it, it can only help. Um, so I, I was always curious about the, what was the um, downside of a light and knock um, from the, why we weren't allowed to shoot at them in Idaho. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it was just because of the blanket rule of um, batteries, electronics, electronics. Did, yeah, yeah. Dealing with arrows. Cause I mean, I, I, there's a scenario there where um, the arrow gets stuck in the animal and now you've got a, a little tiny battery that's, gonna deteriorate over time inside that animal you know, say if they they soak it up and you hit them high and plenty of people have found broadheads stuck in animals you know that they lived and the bone healed around it um I, it's probably not so good for an animal to have a, a battery in there but that's probably also a, a pretty rare circumstance in which that would happen so those are my thoughts have you ever messed with them i'm sure they're legal there in missouri
0: yeah they're definitely more popular um Kind of in the in the whitetail world, um, and I think the real reason here, and I'm, I'm with you, is of um, I've always questioned like why are they outlawed? Other than you said of another blanket rule against electronics, which I kind of understand, but to me, it's okay. They don't they don't help the hunter in any way that gives the animal a you know a disadvantage, right? So they help the hunter in terms of recovery, but not necessarily in terms of hunting effectiveness. Correct. And I'm all for drawing lines on, you know, having some limitation on our capabilities and, and making sure that we're aware of that to give the animal a chance. But I'm also all for let's help the hunter after the shot as much as possible, because by doing so, we're helping the animal. Um, And so from a recovery perspective, I think there's a big benefit to them. I think the natural reason there's more use of them, like say in the whitetail world is because, well, probably two things, but primarily because a lot of guys say in like a tree stand type hunting scenario, you know, it is, it is relatively common to get those last and first light shot opportunities. So lower light conditions, um, I've been there plenty of times myself where I've taken shots, um, shot deer with my bow, uh, not even close to last light, but say in the evening. And then by the time you want to stay in the tree to give the deer some time and then climb out of the tree. Now it's well after dark. So you're literally trying to recover your arrow. Um, not immediately after the shot, but maybe it's 30 minutes later. Now it's dark and having a lighted knock makes it much easier to go. Yep. There's my arrow. Let me go get it, and as you said, assess the blood or what type of hit it was. Um, so I think because of the timing, um, there's more use for them in the white tail world, and guys are also honestly less particular on uh, the specifics of arrow flight in many ways, just because shot opportunities <laughs> do tend to be closer. So yeah. th- there's not quite as um, as particular about arrow setup and FOC and things like that. So I've never used them. To be honest with you, to me. Um, although I see massive benefit to them, it's just one of those things. It's like, I don't want to worry about another battery, battery, another electronic, another thing that may fail. And when I say fail, I know it's not going to ruin my hunt, but it's like one more thing in my head of like mentally, here's another thing I have to worry about turning on or seeing if it works or keeping it up to date or whatever. Right. Another cost, you know, if you're shooting arrows, it's like, no, I don't want to switch from like a practice arrow set up without a lighted knock to a hunting arrow with a lighted knock, but then also don't want to practice with lighted knocks and then bust a knock and be out, you know, the money And to me it's just like, yeah, whatever. So I just, yeah, I don't have uh, specific recommendations on models or anything like that to make, but I don't, I don't think there's a downside to them. Um, yeah, really. So. Um,
1: mechanicals versus fix. Uh, I, I don't really have a, firm opinion either way i've always thought um that as a whole there would be less wounded animals if mechanicals were allowed um and that comes from you know owning an archery shop and working on bows and tuning bows for other guys um fixed blades are much 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 more finicky um you know obviously there's design exceptions within a model of a, a fixed blade versus a mechanical broadhead but as a general rule you're going to find mechanicals fly better than fixed blades um when i did solid broadheads and i was designing that head i kind of had like a list of um things and number one was accuracy if the if the broadhead isn't accurate and it's hitting where you're aiming what's the freaking point who cares what the rest of it looks like right Um, the main goal is to hit your aiming point so if that's the main goal mechanicals fly better than uh, fixed as a general rule i think we're you know you're better off certainly if you go just like open a cabela's catalog or something like that and or just google search mechanical broadheads there's a lot of very poorly designed mechanicals on the market that you do not want to put an elk through and how you educate the same guy who won't spend the time to tune his bow properly and have a really good fixed blade broadhead flying well uh is also the same guy that's probably more apt to buy a poorly designed mechanical um so it's i think it's a wash man like i really do um i also there's the downside of as you know technology increases hunters want to shoot further the thing that you know if you you got this uh whether it's a rifle or a bow um you've got a dial sight uh, on a bow you've got binoculars now that the range and give you the exact MOA. like we're starting to stretch distances and so that in itself is going to lead to more wounded animals and I see that happening with mechanicals like you know guys they go to the range they're shooting their fixed broadheads and you know you're the vast majority of people are ethical hunters and they're gonna um, you know be like yeah, hey, my broadhead group is really crappy after 50 yards so 50 is my max but then they slap on the mechanical and go man I can shoot out to 70 now Um, so I think you're going to, that'll be a downside effect of it. Besides the occasional failures of the heads, once they hit an elk bone, you're going to have guys stretch their ranges further. And, um, again, watch it, which I say is a wash. Like at the end of the day, I, I, if the goal is to prevent wounded animals, I think it's yeah. 50, 50. So,
0: Hmm.
1: um, I think I would certainly myself look at them, um, see if I can find a model out there that is well-built. And I think. Um, you know, has a good chance. I'd, I'd be curious to know, look at states like Utah. I mean, I think fixed blades are still very popular. I don't think it's like a hundred percent of everybody's shooting mechanicals, right? Mm. Um, I'd be curious to know stats in other states of, of what people are doing where it has been legal for a long time.
0: Yeah, it's interesting to me because I, I look at this, I don't want to say differently, but I, I feel like I look at it with a, a different perspective. Based on even my last five plus years experience getting more into rifles, is now coming back to like a uh, fixed versus mechanical debate. I look at that a little bit differently now than I did, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten years ago, because I f- I feel like there's like these parallels you can make to bullet choice, right? It's like shooting a burger versus like a solid tough bonded or mono you know there's a little bit of like you just make pros and cons to all this stuff of you know can either one get the job done yeah but then it's like okay just know what you're doing and know how it performs at its best and at its worst let that dictate the shots you take and even like the placement um of those shots on the animal. So it, it's it's really, it's like, okay, you can just make these generalizations about this is good or this is bad or you should or you shouldn't. But really, I think the the best hunter is going to realize I've selected this broadhead or this bullet or, you know, we can get outside of that and talk about different pieces of gear, whatever. And now here's the best way to utilize that And then on the flip side, here are the potential downsides of this particular thing that I need to then be aware of. And so it really always comes back to the hunter, their choices, their knowledge, and their application of anything, not that thing in and of itself. So keep that in mind for mechanicals uh, versus fixed. Keep that in mind for bullet choice. Keep that in mind for... Oh, lots of aspects of things. It's, (laughs) it's how you as a hunter choose to apply that thing, not the inherent good or bad of the object itself. Well said. Cool. Well guys, that's uh, a wrap today. Once again, if you have a question for us, just look for the link in the short description that says leave a message and we'll tackle that on a future Monday minute episode. As always, we do appreciate you guys tuning in be sure to hit the subscribe or follow button. If you haven't already, so that you receive future episodes automatically and we will talk to you soon.